Amen. Is that some powerful worship or what? Love spending that time with you guys. How about this? Are you guys ready to dive into Ezekiel chapter 14? All right, all right. Well, you're a little more enthusiastic than I was when I found out I was uh, prepping this passage for you guys this morning. You know, I'll, I'll be honest with you. There's some heavy moments in Ezekiel, aren't there? There's some stuff in here that is hard to take in. It's hard to understand. And it can be a little bit like, man, why don't we flip just a few of these pages and let's get to like Luke 1 or something. Let's talk about when Jesus was born. It's something a little more lighthearted because, you know, I opened this passage few weeks ago and, and say, well, let's just get, you know, let me get an idea of what this is about. Let's see here. Well, the subtitles say, idolatry will be punished. Judgment on persistent unfaithfulness. Well, hey, we're going to have fun this morning. <laughs> and, you know, sometimes I, I think we almost need an alternate title for a chapter like this. Because, you know, the, the titles that are in here are not inspired like the text itself is. And I kind of like some of these TV shows or some of these movies that, that give you like two titles. Like Rocky and Bullwinkle used to do this all the time. I watched a ton of Rocky and Bullwinkle because, hey, if my dad likes it, I like it. And they would always do something like, tune in next time for the snowman cometh. Or an icicle built for two. Or, or a famous one is Dr. Strangelove. Well, what's that about? Or how I learned to stop worrying and love the bomb. Gives you just a little bit more of what might be happening here. But here's the deal. When we come to something like Ezekiel, you know, when we're reading about judgment, let's be honest, we don't want to pull any punches that God would not pull. We don't want to sugarcoat anything that God would not sugarcoat. We don't want to miss how sincere God is about wrongdoing. At the same time, we don't want to miss the undercurrent of his heart that is flowing through these chapters. So, so maybe an alternate title for, for this might be something like, you know, judgment for idols or why God is a better God than a false God. I don't know. But what I do know is that we're going to see a theme running through chapter 14 this morning that God wants to seize my heart so that I can see his heart. God wants to seize my heart so that I can see his heart. And in this chapter, God is going to seize our hearts by essentially giving us a spiritual cardiogram, doing some heart tests on us, and then letting us see his heart for us through four examples of judgment and four examples of mercy. So the spiritual cardiogram is the first thing that he's going to do. And if you look at chapter 14, verse 1, he's trying to help the people of Israel, and especially here, their leaders, identify their inner idols. This is what it says. Now some of the elders of Israel came to me and sat before me, and the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their hearts and put before them that which causes them to stumble into iniquity. Should I let myself be inquired of at all by them? Therefore speak to them and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Every one of the house of Israel who sets up idols in his heart and puts before him what causes him to stumble into iniquity and then comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him who comes according to the multitude of his idols. But get this, that I may seize the house of Israel by their heart because they are all estranged from me by their idols. 
You see, what God is doing here is, throughout Ezekiel, we've seen that they had literal, physical idols. Made of stone, made of wood, made of metal, set up, even in the temple where they were supposed to be worshiping God, and saying, we put these things in front of us, and that's God too. And it would be easy for us to say, well, I don't have any wooden or stone or, or metal idols set up in my house, so at least I'm not like Israel. But God is saying they have even a deeper problem. Because even if it looks okay on the outside, they have idols set up in their hearts. Things that draw them away from God, that lead them away from God's control, that lead them away from focus on Him and His purpose for them, and distract them to focus on things that, as He describes it, they cause them to stumble, to fall, to hurt themselves and to hurt people around them. And so I think it's helpful to kind of ask ourselves some questions to try to identify if we have inner idols. You know, and you've probably heard us use this kind of language, and I I hope you're starting to catch on, that when we talk about idols, sometimes those are good things. Right? But if a good thing becomes an ultimate thing for us, to the point that, that this replaces God, then even that good thing becomes an idol in our hearts. And so... Some of the questions that that help me kind of do this heart check, do this spiritual cardiogram, is you can ask yourself, what motivates me? What really drives me? When I'm thinking through the hours of my day and how I'm going to spend them, I I say this is important, but man, I really want this thing. Or or maybe on the flip side of that, what paralyzes me? And where is there a place where, where God would have me take action or God would have me show love? But there's something that's keeping me from doing it. Maybe a a fear or another desire. Or or another big question is just, what are my priorities? This is one I know that that makes me check my heart, is just thinking, how do I spend my time and my money? And again, there's things that we can spend those on that, that are good things. But if that happens at the expense of God, right? if we look at our priorities and God is not in the first place and everything else submitted to him, And it may be that we're hanging on to an inner idol. You know, as we identify our inner idols, some of those can be things like self-sufficiency. And again, it can be good, right? It's nice to have a little bit of money in the bank. It's nice to feel like we're set up for retirement. All of those things can be good. But we very quickly realize how they may be controlling our lives when they change very suddenly. Right? We we lose a job. Or there's a medical emergency that, that drains what we may have set aside. And all of a sudden, we find ourselves in a place of fear about the future, and we begin to notice that we may have been trusting the self-sufficiency more than we were trusting God. You know, another one can be pleasing others. Are we more worried about what other people think about us than what God thinks about us? Another one might be comparison. And, and I've heard this one. I hadn't really thought about this one before, but lately I've been hearing this a lot from, actually from young mothers, and largely because of Facebook, believe it or not. But as I learn more and more about it, I realize, hey, this isn't just young mothers. This is, hey, I'm, I'm a young father. I think this can happen to grandparents too. And, and one of the places that this crops up is we're always comparing ourselves to other people. And then we either think, I'm not good enough. They're not good enough. I wish I was more like them. I, I, I covet what they have. And, and I've noticed that uh, for my wife and I, this can be a battle because as a parent you're, you're, or a grandparent, you're trying really hard, right? You want to influence these little kids as much as you can. You want to help them grow up and, and, and learn good routines and learn who God is and learn to trust Him. And you're doing the best you can. And you feel like, 
you know, I think we're doing okay. And they, they fight over car seats sometimes. We talked about that, right? But, but for the most part, then you get on Facebook and somebody posts, best Christmas ever. And, and there's a video of, of all of their kids and nobody's fighting and everybody's so well behaved. And when it's time to leave church, they walk in a single file line and you start feeling like super dad over here, super mom over here. I think they're so great as a parent. And, well, now where is that coming from? <laughs> And a little bit of resentment can form in our hearts. And instead of the love of Christ that should be pouring out, that can become an inner idol. You know, fear can become an idol that paralyzes us from doing what God has asked us to do. Worldly pleasure can become an idol. You know, things that we know we need to let go of that that don't please God, but they please us and that makes it hard to let go. You know, loving money, loving success, prioritizing those things over over family, loving others, generosity. These all can become idols. So what do we do about it? Well, if you look at verse 6, you can probably guess, but God wants to make it loud and clear. Verse 6 says, Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Repent. Turn away from your idols and turn your faces away from all your abominations. Now, repent can be a heavy word, can't it? There's a lot of emotional baggage that can be packed into the word repent. Because often when you picture that word, you you picture maybe somebody up here yelling at you, right? Repent, you sinners! And we think of it as a word of judgment, but really repent is a word of freedom. You see, God is saying that there are consequences for the sin for the wrongdoing, for all the ways that God's people were missing the mark and driving themselves away from Him, from the way they were causing themselves to stumble and fall and hurt themselves. God says there are going to be consequences from that. There will be judgment for that because I'm trying to take action to seize your heart, to bring you back. But guess what? There can be freedom from that too if you repent. And actually the word that you see here, repent, turn away, and turn, Those are all the exact same word in the Hebrew. Shuv. That's the root of of these words. Shuv. Now, you don't have to remember that Hebrew word, but I want you to kind of catch the nuance here. Because what that word means is to turn back, to turn away, and it's really a a literal, physical process of turning. So if they were using this word in in common language, you might hear somebody say something like, Oh yeah, I was was, uh, headed over to the Kroger the other day, and I got like halfway there and realized I forgot my wallet. So I had to shove uh, and go get it. It's that literal of a word. That's the way that they would use it. But God chooses to use it here to give us that picture. Because whether we have set idols in front of ourselves physically or set them in front of ourselves in our hearts, God is saying, repent, turn away. But the third time, I think, gives it even a little bit more nuance. Because there's almost this sense that that God wants to make sure you heard it just exactly how important this is. So repent, turn away. Sometimes we we turn, but just looking back a little bit because I really liked that thing. Or maybe I really hated that thing about myself, but it's just hard to let go of. God says, and turn your face away. Complete turning around. Away from the things that cause us to stumble and cause us to fall. You know, for comparison, 
quite honestly, that might mean no more Facebook. <laughs> Something as simple as that sounds like, wow, I mean, that's a little bit of overkill. Hey, if Facebook gets in front of me and causes me to stumble, then Facebook isn't worth it. You know, that may be something different for you, but, you know, for worldly pleasure, you know, for all the ways that we can get trapped in the importance of our physical appearance, you know, what is it that you need to set aside so that you don't stumble into that? Or guys, if it's the worldly lust that faces pretty much every man, you know, it may be getting that internet accountability, you know, getting a mentor or an accountability partner who can encourage you to be pure, you know, for, for money, or for success, you know, I, I know one for me, the antidote every single time that I'm either too worried about money or too excited about money, and either of these things can, can lock into here and you start to count on the money, right? I know the antidote for me every single time is it's time to give some money away. Generosity, you know, is, is the cure for that. To say, if this thing is getting in front of me, if this is going to cause me to stumble, I need to do something to let go of that, to remind myself that I don't trust the money. I, I trust God. And just to give some of that away. You see, whatever it looks like, and, and you know, yours may not be on this list, but as you're talking to God about this, you say, God, whatever is in my heart that isn't you, I want you to rip it out. And I want to turn away from that. I want to replace that. Because here's what happens if we don't. If you look at verse 7, God is going to describe the way that this goes for the people who had the idols set up in their hearts. It says, For anyone of the house of Israel, or of the strangers who dwell in Israel, who separates himself from me and sets up his idols in his heart, and puts before him what causes him to stumble into iniquity, then comes to a prophet to inquire of him concerning me, I, the Lord, will answer him by myself. I will set my face against that man and make him a sign. And a proverb, like God's going to make an example of him. And I will cut him off from the midst of my people. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. Right? This has been a recurring theme of God's all through this book, that we shall know that he is the Lord. And if the prophet is induced to speak anything, I, the Lord, have induced that prophet, and I will stretch out my hand against him and destroy him from among my people Israel. And they shall bear the iniquity. The punishment of the prophet shall be the same as the punishment of the one who inquired. You see, this is the reason that we don't want to pull any punches that God isn't pulling. And we don't want to sugarcoat anything that God isn't sugarcoating. Because that's part of the problem that the people of Israel were having in Ezekiel's day. Is that they would come to a prophet who would say, don't worry about it. God, God's not really that angry. He wouldn't really do this to Jerusalem. It's going to be okay. And essentially making it easier for people to continue to stumble and hurt themselves. But can we just all agree in this room this morning, we don't want to do anything that would make it easier for each other to stumble and hurt ourselves and hurt the people around us. Are you with me on that one? Thank you. <laughs> I mean, that's part of why we know we've got to go through books like this. We've got to study stuff like this, and we've got to take this seriously because we want to make it easier to encourage one another to turn back to God. All right, that's the purpose that he has here. In fact, if you look at verse 11 at the bottom of that section, this is what God says that he's doing here, that the house of Israel may no longer stray from me, nor be profaned anymore with all their transgressions, but that they may be my people. And I may be their God, says the Lord God. In fact, if you pull up 
verses 5, 6, and 11 together. I think this is where you see the, those alternate titles, that theme that is running through this passage. Because God is giving you the purpose for which the judgment is coming. In verse 5, he said that I may seize the house of Israel by their heart to take us back so that we repent, turn away, turn so that we no longer stray, right? That we no longer battle and fail and hurt ourselves with our wrongdoing, but that we may be his people and he may be our God. It's the same kind of language that he uses throughout all of scripture, even to describe the eternity that we will spend with him, that we will be his people and he will be our God in this perfect relationship with him. So maybe that's another alternate title. God's heart to take back God's people. You see, that's his purpose here. And in fact, in the second half of the chapter, we get another whole layer of the way that God is using judgment and mercy to show us his heart. And in the second half of the chapter, we'll see how we can see God's heart in judgment and mercy. And he begins in verse 12 with four examples of judgment. And these come one after the other, and they begin to build on each other. And you see what he says here. The word of the Lord God came again to me, saying, Son of man, when a land sins against me by persistent unfaithfulness. You see, Ezekiel's people had been warned time and time again. They had heard prophecy after prophecy. They'd been given opportunity after opportunity, and they continued to turn their backs on God and to set up these idols in their hearts. And so he says... When a land sins against me by persistent unfaithfulness, I will stretch my hand out against it. I will cut off its supply of bread, send famine on it, that's one, and cut off man and beast from it. Even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, they would deliver only themselves by their righteousness, says the Lord God. If I cause wild beasts to pass through the land, that's two, and they empty it and make it so desolate that no man may pass through because of the beasts, Even though these three men were in it, as I live, says the Lord God, they would deliver neither sons nor daughters. Only they would be delivered and the land would be desolate. Or if I bring a sword on that land, that's three. And say, sword, go through the land, and I cut off man and beast from it. Even though these three men were in it, as I live, says the Lord God, they would deliver neither sons, not even daughters, but only they themselves would be delivered. Or if I send a pestilence into that land, that's four. And pour out my fury on it in blood and cut off from it man and beast. Even though Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, as I live, says the Lord God, they would deliver neither son nor daughter. They would deliver only themselves by their righteousness. Did you take that all in? I mean, this is a heavy moment. God has described four judgments, any one of which would desolate the land, desolate the people. And in the midst of that, he's telling us that that even if men like Daniel, Job, and Noah were there, they would be the only ones saved. You see, what's happening here is God is telling them that there is sort of a national responsibility here. right? That as a nation, Israel had fallen. But that in spite of that, he will show mercy to those who have been faithful to him. Because beyond a national responsibility, there's also a personal responsibility. You see, the people in Ezekiel's day kind of had this impression that, well, well, God wouldn't really do these things, right? I mean, we're Israel. 
We're the chosen people. We're, we're God's people. That's Jerusalem you're talking about. Certainly God wouldn't do that. Besides, there, there's guys like Daniel among us. I mean, these are good people. At least for their sake, wouldn't God spare us from this judgment? And God's kind of saying, well, I'll, I'll spare them. They repented, right? They've turned. They, they've set their hearts on me. They've been righteous. They've been faithful to me. You see, if God didn't take action to destroy what was evil, his people were going to destroy themselves. And that's how we see the heart of God, even through the judgment. Because the judgment is not God flying off the handle. The judgment is God trying to seize our hearts, trying to take us back, trying to get our attention. So what is it that's so unique about Noah, Daniel, and Job? Well, when we read the stories of these men in the Bible, we realize that they are visual aids. They are visual aids of righteous living in an unrighteous world. And they are noted as, as really being unique for this. In fact, when you read the story of Noah, it says that the world around Noah, that everyone was doing only evil all of the time. Ooh. But God himself describes Noah as righteous. When the Bible describes Job, it says that he was blameless and upright, that he feared God and shunned evil, that in all the world there was nobody like Job. You see, both of them stood out as visual aids of righteous living. You know, for people in Ezekiel's day, Noah and Job are like ancient times. You know, and it might be tempting to say, well, hey, at least we're not as bad as they were in Noah's time, right? They, they only did evil all of the time. So it was different for Noah. And Ezekiel's saying, no, it's not. Right? When you hear this warning from God, it's just like it was in Noah's day. Because God is the same as he was in Noah's day. And in fact, if Noah and Job were ancient examples for them, then Ezekiel lists Daniel right in the middle, who would have been a contemporary of these people. In fact, most traditional scholars believe that the prophecy we're looking at tonight, that the judgments we're talking about tonight, were written somewhere between the time of Daniel 2 and Daniel 3. So we haven't had a fiery furnace yet. We haven't had a lion's den yet. And yet, we have seen that Daniel, somebody who was faithful to God, who was also taken into captivity because he remained faithful to God, even in an unrighteous world, had been elevated to second in command over all of Babylon. It's as if Ezekiel is saying, you know these examples from olden times, but guess what? This is still true today. And I think that would be a word for our hearts as well, because even Daniel is ancient times for us. And we might be tempted to say, like, man, I got some stuff to work on, but at least I'm not like Israel was. I mean, the world's not as bad as they were, right? And different for us today i think god would tell us through ezekiel it's really not brother sister follower of christ sitting in this room this morning you have an opportunity to be a visual aid of righteous living in an unrighteous world to experience the kind of mercy that god would show noah daniel and Job because they followed him faithfully And why did he show them that mercy? I think Hebrews 11, verse 7, gives us a perfect explanation of this. It's talking specifically about Noah, but it gives us a principle that's true for all of them and even for us. That it's not because these three men were perfect. It's not because they never sinned. But look at what it says about Noah. 
by faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear. Right? He heard the warning and he acted on it, prepared an ark for the saving of his household by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. That these three men were men who had their faith in God, not on the inner idols. And so God showed them mercy. Now, if you're paying attention tonight, you're thinking, well, well, Drew, you said that there were four examples of mercy, but there are only three names up there. Thank you for paying attention. <laughs> There's one more in this chapter, but it kind of comes from a different direction. And if you look at verse 21, all of these four judgments that have been building up come to a head in this verse. For thus says the Lord God, how much more shall it be when I send my four severe judgments, all of them at once, on Jerusalem, the sword and famine and wild beasts and pestilence to cut off man and beast from it. I'll be honest with you. First time I'm reading this passage, when I get to verse 21, like I have to take a break for a minute because he described already how if any one of these things happened, the land, the people would be desolate, could not withstand it. Even if these three men were there, not even sons or daughters would be saved. Now, what happens when all four come at once? But look what God says in verse 22. Yet, behold, there shall be left in it a remnant who will be brought out. Both sons and daughters, surely they will come out to you and you will see their ways and their doings. Then you will be comforted concerning the disaster that I have brought upon Jerusalem, all that I have brought upon it. And they will comfort you when you see their ways and their doings. And you shall know that I have done nothing without cause that I have done in it, says the Lord God. You see, God leaves a remnant as an example. This is an example of God's heart, of God's mercy. That if even one of these judgments landed, not even sons nor daughters, but even when all of them come, yet we see God's heart, both sons and daughters, that he will bring people out because of his heart, because of his plan, because of his promise. Because since the beginning of time, he has planned that a redeemer will come from the house of Israel. And so he is keeping a remnant to make sure that his plan happens. But what's really interesting about this remnant is that he gave us Noah, Daniel, and Job as examples of righteous living in an unrighteous world. Men who experienced his mercy because they were faithful to him. But this remnant was not faithful to him. Now, our understanding here is that, that this remnant was part of the people in Israel, in Jerusalem, who were unrighteous. And yet, God preserves them. So that when he says, you will see their doings, you will see their ways, and you will be comforted. Well, how are we comforted from an unrighteous people letting us see how unrighteous they were? Well, it's what God says in that last verse. That you'll know I've done nothing without cause that I have done in it. You can imagine the people in captivity beginning to wonder if God was here at all. If their God was real after all. If their God had abandoned them forever because the judgments that were coming were so painful... And they began to wonder if God is just flying off the handle. 
But when this remnant shows up, you might even say to them, man, I'm, I'm so sorry this must be so hard for you. How horrible it must have been to see that. How could God do this to you? And they say, actually, you, you've seen our ways. You've seen our doings. You know what we were up to. We're actually thankful to be alive. God had purpose behind all of that. And so if you haven't heard him before, would you hear him now? That he's serious about what leads us astray, but that in his mercy, he preserved us. And that brings a comfort to know that God is just, but God is also merciful. You know, God leaves them as an example. So maybe another alternate title would be, let's try to be more like Daniel maybe. Learn to set an example instead of become an example. Right? But you see, packed into the middle of this, there's something so amazing about the heart of God that flows not only through this chapter, but through all of Scripture until the time of Christ. You see, this is what's so amazing about what Christ did for us. When we talk about how the, the punishment that brought Christ, that brought us peace was upon Him, right, this is the kind of stuff that He's talking about. Judgments like this, that God would turn His face away from us. Jesus Christ came to this place to live the righteous life, to die the death of the unrighteous, to have God's face set against Him. On our behalf. In fact, Ephesians chapter 2 captures this perfectly. Because God leaves a remnant not only as an example, but for redemption. And it says in Ephesians 2 that we were by nature children of wrath. That's where we were stuck, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses. Even when we were stuck with the idols in our hearts, even when we were broken and stumbling and causing ourselves to hurt those around us, made us alive together with Christ by grace. You have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ. See, this, is what Jesus brings us. This is the heart of the Father, that He would come to us in the flesh to take that punishment that we might know His mercy if we put our faith in Him. You know, you can let others see God's heart through you. You know, if you can, if you can share an example of how you've seen Jesus do that in your life, you know, that's, that's what we call a testimony, Right? That you talk about that moment when everything that was trapped inside, that was building your frustration or, or trapping you in anxiety, causing you to trip, causing you to fall, causing you pain in your life, and you can say, but here's how Jesus stepped into the middle of it. Here's how God turned me away from that stuff and showed me joy and blessing and peace and mercy and replaced those things in my heart. You know, I heard a story like this uh, just a couple of weeks ago. A guy in my small group shared a video uh, with me of, of Deion Sanders, football player, giving his testimony. And I'll be honest with you, I don't like Deion Sanders a whole lot because he has two Super Bowl rings that came against my team. <laughs> but when I saw this video, 
I mean, it, it totally changed the way I thought about him. He actually stood a couple weeks ago right here in Cincinnati, standing out in front of the condo that he lived in when he played for the Reds and made this video talking about how really success, fame, money had become his idol. How he had the Super Bowl rings and he had the money and he had the success. He had the fame and everybody loved him. He had a wife and kids and it all started falling apart. His wife was leaving him. She was trying to take the kids with him. And all of a sudden, all the money, all the rings, none of it meant anything. And he was broken. And how the darkness was closing in on him. And how he realized that these were the things that had been controlling his heart until right there in that condo, right here in Cincinnati, he found Jesus who could set him free. But you know, it's not just that one-time testimony. It's not just the first time that we find him, but I think that there's a lot of power in what you might call like a daily testimony. That yes, this is the moment when it all started, but I still had a lot to learn. Are you with me? And I, I, can, tell you, I can tell you dozens of stories like that in my own life where it's like this is the moment that God, got hold of, that God got a hold of my heart and then this is the moment that he identified another inner idol and he had to rip it out and that was painful. But I can tell you about victory because of that. I can tell you that God is who he says he is. That Jesus can do what he says he can do. You know, and fear is one of these for me. Fear is one that threatens often to be an inner idol in my heart. To paralyze me and keep me from doing what God might ask me to do. And when we can share that story of victory to help others see God's heart, then we help them find the same freedom. You know, I might ask you, what story of victory can you share to help others see God's heart. You know, I try, to, I try to share those stories when I get a chance, especially with my kids. Like, I hope that they can learn things from me that I took too long to learn. <laughs> and, and I've got one of my boys, just a little guy, but he's dealing with fear right now. And, and this never happened before. But all of a sudden, every time we go to bed, it's like, yeah, but Dad, like, what about dragons? And what about wolves? And what about tornadoes? And, and what about floods? And it's like he can't sleep. I mean, this is, this is real for him. That he's so worried about what will happen while he's asleep or what's going to happen tomorrow. You know, or, or, or I'll get these texts like, did you make it to work okay? I'm like, well, yes? Okay, good, because he's worried about you. <laughs> and so to be able to get down with my son and say, yeah, maybe this is genetic, I don't know. <laughs> but son, I know how you feel. Like, I'm not worried about dragons, but there's stuff that causes me fear too. Son, let me tell you how Jesus helps me. Let me give you the verses that I read when I'm caught in that place. Let me tell you the things that I talk to God about when I'm stuck there. And you know what? Let's, let's read that verse right now. How about we pray together right now? And you can imagine the power when he begins to learn to do that. But not just our kids. You know, maybe it's somebody that I work with. And I can see in them that anxiety, they, they may not want it to, but it's become an idol in their heart because it's controlling them more than God is. And I can say, hey, nothing personal, but I think I see something hurting you that has hurt me before. Can I tell you about freedom? You know, and for some people it might sound a little weird when you start telling them, Jesus gives me freedom. And I know that might sound like voodoo magic or something weird. But can I just share with you, like, what God has said to me and how he has set me free from that kind of stuff. 
and those daily testimonies let other people see God's heart. So think for yourself, what story of victory can you share to help others see God's heart? And it may be that you don't have a story of victory yet. You can go ahead and bring up that slide. It may be that that there's still something that God needs to pull out of here to show you where he can give you victory. It may be that today is the first time that you say, Jesus, I think I've had other stuff controlling my life, but I want it to be you instead. So that I can turn from self-sufficiency to relying on God. That I can turn from pleasing others to pleasing God. That I can turn from comparison to understanding my identity in Christ alone. That I can turn from worldly pleasure to pleasing the Spirit. That I can turn from loving money and success to loving God and others. So that I can experience the victory and share it with someone else. Because God wants to seize our hearts so that we can seize so that we can see his heart and help others see his heart. And so maybe a, maybe a good alternate title for this passage is, is Judgment on Idols and Unrighteousness or How I Learned to Stop Stumbling and Love the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father God, you are good to us. You are faithful even when we are unfaithful. But Lord, I pray that even here and now this morning, If you are resting a hand on our hearts to say, I see this thing and I know that it hurts you and I know you want freedom and I can give you freedom, God, that we would hear you, that we would be willing to do the hard work that it might take to be freed from that by you. God, that you would seize our hearts so that we can see how much you love us. God, I pray your grace over every person in this room in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I want to thank you all for coming this morning. You know, if you've got any questions about something that you heard this morning or something in the message, hey, please come and find me. I'm usually down front or or back by the hearth room. And if this is your first time with us today, the hearth room is the third door on the left. The door is standing open, and we'd love to get to know you, put a name with the face, and just find out more about you. Thank you for coming this morning. You're dismissed.